Ask the GM's podcast, episode eight, Shadows Over Camelot. This is Zach from Ask the GM's podcast, where we talk about RPGs, board games, how to play them and have a great time. I've been playing games for years, and I'm going to pass off my part of this conversation to Ian. Hello, everyone. Ian Harper here. Uh, I have also been playing board games for a while. I'm actually... I'm going to steal a page out of RC's book here. I'm a second-generation board gamer and war gamer. My dad plays uh, board games and war games as well. I'm going to pass it off to Rob. Well, my name's Rob, uh, and I, too, like games. And, and Brian. Hey, everybody. Uh, my name's Brian, and I um, I enjoy board games. Still pretty new, similar to like the RPGing. Um, and while I'm here, I do also want to give a shout out to our um, friends at uh, Cape Fear, um, <clears throat> Cape Fear Games, and Sideboard. Um, it's a great place with awesome people. That's uh, where we spend a lot of time and definitely a lot of money. And um, yeah, they're awesome. And I'm then going to send it over to Pat. Hey, everybody. It's Pat again. Um... Love board games. I love the whole community around it because I used to be a big video gamer and kind of lonely. But when you're around a table with your friends, it's even better. Um, RC, how about you, bro? I uh, just want to say welcome back, everybody. Welcome back. Um, you know, I'm just happy to be here and have a great time with y'all and talk about a cool game. For tonight's topic, we're covering Shadows Over Camelot, which was one of the first co-op board games that ever came out. Uh, before that was Lord of the Rings, which some people have played, not everyone has played. Uh, Pandemic was very close to when Shadows Over Camelot came out. And it really just developed a new form of board games where everyone at the table, or at least the majority of the pl- players at the table, had a goal to work together. It's also one of the first board games to have a hidden traitor. It was later emphasized and re-implemented in Battlestar Galactica, the traitor portion. So that's one of the more f- famous portions of that game. Uh, It also has a King Arthur theme, so if you're really into King Arthur, it's there for you. And uh, what are everyone's initial thoughts on Shadows Over Camelot? Starting with you, Pat. Okay, my first initial thoughts. Well, let me say, as far as tension in a game, this one handles it so well because you're constantly riding that line of, oh my god, oh my god, are we about to, you know, lose this all at once? And then, you know, either A, you make it out by the hair of your chinny chin chin or um you know the traitor just really sticks it in you and turns that knife so i I believe this game really handles that kind of tone very well um ian what's your thoughts um so first of all i love a good traitor mechanic i'm a huge fan of the traitor mechanic in pretty much every board game i've played that has one uh i i personally have unfathomable i've uh I've played a couple of games that that have the traitor mechanic. That's my that's my key highlight of of it is the is the traitor mechanic. And also, Pat, I agree with you. It has a it it does a really good job of building um, just building that uh, that 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 tension that you want in a game that 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 adds that 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 adds to the environment of the game. That really adds to the. It kind of makes you feel like you're part of it. I think just the once uh, once the you know once it starts coming down to the wire, you're really you really start to feel it, and I like that. I like being put into that p- position. I like the tension too. Yeah, speaking on tension, uh, the game we played this last Tuesday came down to two players. 
Yeah. Everyone else was dead. Yeah. Ooh, that's That's, a nail biter. That's crazy. And Rob. Well, you know, as a as a fancy cup aficionado, I really appreciate that. This is uh, one of the very few games I've found that really corners that niche market of being very fancy cup centric. Uh, so yeah, I like the abundance of fancy cups in this game, Brian. Um, yeah, chalices are pretty dope. Um, I uh, I too enjoyed the sense of urgency. Um, you know, turn one, you're you're automatically starting off with something negative. So that's like you're feeling the impact of the game right away. So that's pretty fun. Um, and the trader aspect is uh, also very interesting. Um, and I think I need to work on my uh, traderistic nature because I was terrible at it. But RC can tell you more about that. And I just want to go ahead and start with you're, you're not the worst trader, man. <laughs> you, you, you did great. <laughs> None of us knew it was you other than me and Zach. <laughs> Uh, okay thanks i appreciate that i don't believe you but i appreciate it we'll get we'll get you some ace level trader trader training i i i'm i have like a college course in it i am known for taking people on a bus right to the land of victory and then running them over in said bus and walking over there but um yeah just this game in general has a really great way of escalating the tension more than i've seen in any of the other trader style games um there's more than one way that it ups the tension. So you have a life pool that it pulls from. There's the black omen cards that are constantly upping the ante. And then God forbid the trader ever gets revealed because it's going to get hairy real fast. And um, I would like to add one more thing. How, uh, I don't know, there's a, almost a little bit of an RP element in the game where one of the rules is, you know, you have to refer to the king as my king. So, you know, we're sitting there at the table and Zach's King Arthur. And it's like, my king, I will do this for you. Or say, you know, your bad action is I fall upon my sword for, you know, the good of the realm or something like that. And um, whenever we get to talking to the white cards, you have different power levels of knights. And how you're not really supposed to say the exact number so we find ways of fudging it, like, oh, this is the weakest of knights, or this is the strongest. So I liked that little bit of, uh, and I don't even know if it's um, uh, a required rule or not, but it's how we play it, and it is definitely enjoyable. Or my favorite way to refer to them, meaty boys. <laughs> also, Pat, if I'm King Arthur... Just understand that that ship is probably sinking. The number of times I've been King Arthur and haven't been the traitor, super low. Yeah, that's the worst traitor for someone to be. Um, do you want to take us in the gameplay, Zach? Yep, starting with game pay, gameplay. An important part of this game for the traitor mechanic is all play. any player can be the traitor, including the king. And if you play with higher player counts, you can actually have two traitors. The game also offers drop-in, drop-out, so players can actually enter and leave the game at will, which, like, no game has copied that from it. Uh, one of the fun things about the game is after everyone has their their power sheet, all their little stuff as their character, uh, everyone gets to take a card from their initial hand and put it in the middle of the table, and, and you get to do a team-building exercise of divvying out the cards so everyone can kind of see where everyone's going, what everyone's putting in. And then in terms of core gameplay... A turn consists of two things. 
You have to do a bad thing, and then you do a good thing. The bad things range from falling on your sword, so you lose a life for the kingdom. You start with four. Uh, obviously, zero is death. Most people would tend not to go down to one. I want to go down to one because it's very dangerous. You can just randomly die. Uh, you can put a siege engine out. The problem with siege engines is once we get to 12 or so, the game is over. So you don't want to put too many of those out because they are very difficult to remove and they tend to multiply very quickly. And then we can pull black cards, which range from bad to nightmarish. And then for good things, you can, if you're at Camelot, draw two cards. Uh, accuse a knight if there are six swords on the table or six siege engines out there in, in the field. Uh, you can leave Camelot. Your whole turn is moving. Congratulations, you walked. Or you can attempt to complete any of the quests on the board, which range from getting Lancelot's armor, uh, finding the Excalibur, getting the Holy Grail, jousting with the Black Knight, and a couple wars you can fight. So all in all, it's actually a lot of small decisions each player makes. They make a bad action, and then they make a good action. Pat, what are your thoughts on these? Um, well, I will say that the whole bad action, good action is, I can't tell you how many times I've, you know, put a board game out for people and it's like, oh, I got to explain all this stuff. This one is straight and simple as could be bad, good. You make the choice. Obviously, we're going to judge you because if you don't fall on your sword and you're just, oh, I just draw a random black card, you're probably going to draw some ire your direction. <laughs> um... But yeah, I love the simplicity of play and, you know, it gets more complex the more you get into it. Like, say, for instance, Zach is our traitor. I'm just going to pick on him now. He, uh, you know, he goes over to Lancelot's armor, which is kind of a tell because if you have Lancelot's armor, then you can look through the black cards. And if you're the traitor, you can get the worst of the worst black cards. You know, you can pick around. So, you know, if Zach immediately goes over there, we're going to say, hey, that's kind of sus. And that's a lot of what this game is, is us giving each other a stink eye, which I really love. Um, Ian, you got anything to say on gameplay? Yeah, as far as gameplay goes, I, I actually have a, a I, I love the first of all, I love the the two step turn, the, the good action, bad action. I, I also like how well the characters are balanced. Uh, I, I think I think that work. I think all the characters work really well. I, don't, I, I mean, I feel like Arthur Arthur has, you know, he has what he has, obviously, because he's the king. But um, I, I don't really try to figure out who the traitor is. I just kind of have fun with it. Um, but no, that, that is the, the, I like how many like possible directions you have to go, like going to fight the war with the picks and the Saxons or going to joust with the knight, D depending on, you know, I, I, what you have, what, what you have available to you. But, uh, I, I like all the choices that you have to make and the, the kind of the wide variety of things to do coupled with the sense of urgency is what I really like about it. And Rob, I like how it's, uh, it's surprisingly simple. Like uh, there's a lot going on, a lot of different things you can do, but the actual mechanics of how to do those things, uh, really not that difficult. So that was, um, that was pretty nice. It makes it easy to get into. Um, it's not too hard to learn. And RC. I'll, I'll admit this about the game. Uh, the thing that I love the most about it is once the escalation hits a point, because like Ian said, you, you kind of have a free range based on what your cards, what cards you have available early on in the game. Um, 
the game really begins to shine whenever it starts forcing you to make inopportune decisions, leaving quests behind, uh, returning to Camelot to deal with other problems, just dropping yourself lower, closer and closer to death. Once it reaches the second half of the game, it really starts to shine and show its own. Yeah, RC. I was gonna say that the 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 last time I played was with uh, you were you were there, and I believe Zach was there. Um, I can't remember who else was there, but I remember one of you guys got really far in the Grail quest, and it had to be abandoned. There was no like it was either abandon it or die. I just remember it being like there's. This this hurts, you know what I mean. Like this really hurts to do this, but we have to. Um, I, I just thought that was great. Like, like we've been talking about this whole time. Like just the 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 tension is just palpable. I love it. Yeah, the uh, the the tension's there, and the fact that you know, turn three there could be you know already a uh, a solid stack against you. Um, I know when the when we played it was. I don't know what turn it was, but half the uh, half the characters died in one turn just because of a single black card, and that's we were pulling those because there was six or seven siege engines on there. It's like, well, I can't take any more damage, and uh, we're just gonna pull this black card. Oh, I'm dead anyway. So, um, and <clears throat> I, I think that's a, a fun mechanic. Yeah, and I I would add one more thing that the every single quest seems very grueling, like. You know, either you're by yourself and it's, you know, you barely got it or you need the help of all the rest of the knights or a handful of the knights. Because I want to say as far as hard as quest goes, the chalice is the, uh, the holy grail rather is the hardest thing to get. And then maybe behind that uh, Excalibur and then maybe behind that Lancelot's armor. And then the war with the Picts and the Saxons and the Black Knight are on the lower end. But it's still, every single quest is very grueling. So you do have to work hard for it. I was so close to my shiny cup. I might disagree with you there a little bit, Pat. I think Lancelot's armor is harder to get than the sword. Because only one person can go get the armor. Like Everyone can work yeah. on the sword. That's true. Oh, that's that's true. true. Yeah, I, I, I didn't think about that. But would you agree that the Grail is probably the or yeah the Grail is the hardest one? Oh, definitely, for sure. Yeah, I mean it's I, I think it's supposed I think it's I think it's supposed to be. Now, as far as quests that actually give you rewards, it is the Grail is the hardest one. But the hardest quest is the one that none of us have yet completed, which is to slay the dragon. Oh yeah, yeah, yes. that's true. So that was going to be my next lead in into gameplay. Uh, this game is very interesting. Uh, it's one in terms of production value. It's gorgeous. Everyone has full character sheets that have like ninety percent of the rules on there, including your par- your character's special power. So even if you're like playing with new people, they just have to look at this one thing. They can listen to someone talk, but they can read their sheet and know most of the rules. The board's beautiful, and a lot of the bo- it's a- it has a lot of tiny boards, but some of those boards flip over into new quests. So once Lancelot's armor is gained or lost, it turns into the dragon. And the reason why people don't fight the dragon is that you need to face it with three sets of three of a kind. And not many people in that game can sacrifice nine cards. Especially at that point in the game. I don't think you... At that point in the game, that's a tough ask. Yeah. And, uh, Zach, don't forget um, the well-crafted miniatures. They look awesome. And everybody has a little seat at the round table, which is a nice little bonus. 
Yep, there's that. A couple other, I'm going to call these oddities, or, or how about standouts? Uh, you have a 12-card hand limit. That's pretty rare in games. It's pretty rare to have 12-card hand limit. And also the fact that all ties go to evil. So there's no there's no beat there's no meeting a number. You got to beat it. So if you go fight a siege engine, you got to play nine to guarantee you blow that thing up. Otherwise, you're risking bouncing off of it. I, I always like it when the bad guy wins ties. When 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 evil wins ties or whatever the game wins the tie or whatever. The, I I I think that uh, helps with the. I think that helps with the the feeling of the game. Like makes it feel more consequence consequential. And how does right. everyone feel on uh, production values and how the character sheets look? Um, I would say they're all fantastic myself. I mean, all the imagery is great. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. The I mean, it's the card stock that they use for the actual character sheets is is quite robust, um, and it's you know just it is great art for sure. Even the board is fantastic. There's quite a bit of attention to detail for. I know, like where I was sitting, I was kind of over the the jousting with the Black Knight, and that was like there was a lot of detail into like the sand and like the shadow in that, so it was very noticeable. Um, and, uh, yeah, something I really liked about the artwork was kind of kind of Brian to expand on what you were talking about. Like when you look at the board, it's like a eagle's eye or a bird's eye view of the land like the brian you were talking about the jousting it's like you're looking down on the arena and like uh, like the war with the picks and the saxons it's like it's like you're looking down on the battlefield i remember i can't remember which one it was one of them is like on the shore of a beach and it just like it looks like it's like straight up like dudes landing on the beach and i, I just like that that bird's eye perspective um the yeah, production what's that pat I said, yeah, that would be with the Saxons. And then, you know, we get the over top of the castle, too. So, yeah, it's so cool. I like the, the way the round table, you're looking down on the round table. It's just, I love that. Um, I do want to add, I also enjoyed, like, for the, the Grail quests, as it, there's like, you can see the two sides, like the, you know, the, the beginning side for good is golden chalice gorgeous and as it gets to the other side it slowly starts to like not decay but definitely become dusty and covered in cobwebs like you know it's like a deserted kind of uh table situation and that was really cool too very good and now focusing on the trader as we mentioned earlier uh any player can be the trader in the game i play with a guaranteed trader and with having the trader in the game, it, it changes a lot of a, a lot of tiny rules. One, if the loyal knights don't get the trader at the end of the game, two white swords flip over to black. So you want to catch them. You also have someone throwing a spanner in the work so they can help you toss quests. Also, at any time as a as as the trader, you can reveal yourself. You steal any relics you take with you, like the Grail or anything. And then you just get to taunt and make fun of the rest of the players the rest of the game by stealing cards from their hand and either putting the Siege Engine out or playing a black card. How do you guys feel on the trader and why it's important to catch them? Well, I'd say, first off, we I think we have to discuss trader tactics, like what you think the best move is. 
because uh, I know I, I I talked to you a lot about it, Zach. Um, was it Hanwin that did the pretty much immediate trader reveal, like screw you guys from the beginning? And that's one I've wanted to try but haven't gotten around to. Well, he he didn't reveal. He just started pulling black cards. Just no one could accuse uh, him at that point. Yeah, he was just bur- burning you down as much as possible. Which in that I don't feel really reflects kind of the theme of the game. Like mm-hmm. if you want to win, you can do that. Like if you if your goal is to win, yeah, you can do that. But you're not really playing the game. Uh, I got you. Let's see. Uh, anybody else have any any thoughts on how they they like to play the trader? Did uh, did you get away with it recently, Brian? Um, I no, I did not get away with it. I um to avoid suspicion because there was already some suspicion that was aroused. Um, I believe I was fighting the picks and I went down to one life. So I was like, you know, on the brink of death, everybody got called back to Camelot. And then like two black cards later, there was, um, you know, something pulled and it's like, everybody loses one health. And so I was dead. Um, but I guess, uh, my first play of the game was terrible. Cause I played a mystery for uh, like the number one card, uh, which was a faux pas, um, but I didn't really have another option cause I already had the, made the decision and, uh, I would, if I was to do it again, I would not have done that. So I, I've never actually got to play the trader. Like I said, I, I think I mentioned earlier, I've only really played the game twice and I've, I've never got to play the trader yet. Um, I'm, I'm looking forward to it though. I love play. I love being the trader in other trader games that I've played. Zach, what about the tactic where if you're the trader, you just start throwing uh, Grail cards into the dumpster for Excalibur. It's not just Grail cards, special whites, Merlin. You especially do it as Arthur because you want to keep the good cards and like, I just have crap. I just crap. How do you have crap? Oh, I don't know. Well, stuff happened. <laughs> There's this dumpster over here full of Holy Grails and um, awesome Merlin spells. To be fair, if King Arthur is the traitor, it means all of you betrayed him. Oh. That's one way of looking at it, yeah. That's a very meta way of... Uh, that's a very meta approach. Um, I, I did definitely throw away um, as the trader because I, I was able to like discard one white card and draw a new white card. That was my special power. And I definitely like discarded like two or three Grail cards. And I also found out later that I discarded the wrong like special white power, which was Fate. Apparently, I could have lied and said I wasn't the traitor, but I did not read that card correctly. Yeah, we're going to talk about that card in a little bit. Um, as two out of the three times that I've played this game playing the traitor, I've learned some different traitor tactics from Trader Extraordinaire, our host. And uh, disking cards is the probably one of the best ways to really start getting a spanner in the works. There's a couple, there's a couple characters. We've already talked about one of them. Um, that have discard abilities to do other things. The one that I had a successful trader with, he can discard two of the cards from his hand to prevent a life, so you can just fall on your sword and fish cards out of the deck and just keep fishing and fishing and fishing and fishing and fishing. Um, and I, I recently learned that you should totally just accuse the other knights from the get-go if you're the trader. As soon as you're able, or as soon as you're a good time, Accuse your buddy that you know is definitely loyal, and then reveal yourself to be the traitor. <laughs> yeah, it's real. It's real useful for get that additional uh, black sword on the table. Yep, punish for false accusations, right? 
And one thing I failed to mention earlier, uh, this game has a very specific victory condition. It has many losing conditions that are the same. All the players are dead is pretty standard. We mentioned all of the siege engines out. Uh, the, the good players, the loyal players will also lose if the table is full of swords and a majority are black, but they only win if the table is full and a majority are, of the swords are white. What do you guys feel about this victory condition? I personally like it because of the challenge um, and just the effect that uh, just the effect that has on the late gameplay and just the strategy with the trader. I, I I just like the challenge. Yeah, I believe it's interesting how that your you know you have to have a little bit of failure in there just to fill up the table. So really, you gotta kind of pick your battles as a group like okay we're gonna lose this black knight you know fight or this pick war the saxon war mainly so we can fill up the sword or the table with more swords but you know you gotta weigh your options and this may be stepping into a future topic but leading from what you went from picking your decisions of being like are we gonna lose that yeah we're gonna lose that but if we win this one then it's really gonna put us at an advantage this plays into the theme of the game a lot because this this game is not a notoriously happy game. It is about the fall of Camelot, regardless of how you look at it. Whether the knights win or lose, this is the fall of Camelot. And RC, that's that's actually why I really like the game is the theme is the is the backdrop of it. Um, I really enjoy that because I, I I really get into I'm I've always been. Uh, some of my friends and my family definitely picks on me for this, but I, I get into the, I get into the flavor. Like I get into the, uh, the actual environment. I like to get into it. And, and I really like the backdrop of, of shadows of camp over Camelot. I think it's great. Moving on to the next topic. Uh, majority of the game focuses on two decks of cards. One, one of them being the white deck and the other one being the black deck. We're going to talk about the white deck real quickly. A majority of the cards are just fight cards valued one to five. There's also some wilds in there that can be either one or five or whatever you want. Grails and then special white cards that take your whole turn to play. But the important thing about the special white cards is they kind of change the game. And there's two that we specifically have to talk to. One is being a tournament and the other one being fate. But overall, what are you guys' feelings on special white cards or the white cards in general? I know Merlin's another really good one to talk about. Um, I like the group hugginess of the Merlin card because one Merlin, you know, just comes in clutch at the right moment. And what is it? You have to play three white Merlin cards to uh, negate uh, one of the big, nasty uh, black cards like Morgana or something like that. Yeah, it's three Merlins. Yeah. Or, or you get rid of Excalibur forever to stop one. Oh, I did not know that was a rule. That's pretty intense. Yeah, um, I, I, I like the Merlin, the group hug. I, that's a good, that's a good way to put it. Um, and it's a good way to, uh, you know, out the traitor because if, you know, all the other Merlin cards we played with six people, so there was two, you know, two sets of Merlins that could be played, and if somebody had discarded theirs, then they were pretty much guaranteed to be the traitor. Very good. And we're going to talk about fate really quickly. Brian mentioned like messing, messing up reading that. It is one of the two cards I see people mess up all the time. I feel that if they do a reprint of the game, they just need to add like a handful of additional words on that card. Because how it actually works is 
I claim I am loyal. All knights draw a card. And the second half says, if you are the traitor, you can reveal. And then all, all good knights discard a card. I've seen traitors draw the card and think they have to play it and instantly reveal. I've seen people mess that card up all the time. The other card is tournament, where it says, if you are a squire, become a knight. It's a variant from the expansion we never play with. But the second half of that card says, or gain two life. And a lot of people just get focused on that first half of the card. Any thoughts or comments on these? Life is always solid in my book. But we don't really uh, play with, or I don't know that we play with squires that often. So I don't know how, how much that would affect things for me. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I'm not familiar with that at all. Um, just a note on fate, because last time that I played, and finally wasn't the traitor. Um, or the time before that, when I was the traitor, I actually had to come over there and ask you about it. And I was like, what the hell does this card mean? <laughs> yes, yeah, it's, it's one of the few cards that I see people just like fumble over. I'm like, I get it. Just read it twice and then think on it. And it makes sense. I see people mess it up all the time. And unfortunately, historically, Shadows Over Camelot is the game I see messed up the most in terms of my like history of playing games. And some of that I don't get. Like I've seen people say they won, but the table's not full. I'm like, no, you got to fill the table. I see that fate card me- messed up all the time. I played with nine people and player eight asked me every turn what he was supposed to be doing. I'm like, it's on your little character sheet. Also, man, you had seven people in front of you. Like, do about the same two things. Have you not been paying attention? Yeah, it, it, um, and anyone who's who's ever played with with Zach knows that that's that's a no no. Um, one thing I will say, this kind of goes back to um, the gameplay portion of it, is that I find with a lot of cooperative board games, you can kind of I don't I guess I call it alpha gamer it where you you're seeing what everybody's doing, and especially in a cooperative setting. And then you see people making suboptimal plays, and you're just kind of like, oh, oh, this sucks because you're taking our whole team down. I feel like um, Shadows Over Camelot doesn't really make you do that, or whenever you're playing, because you're not really knowing what everybody's doing. You kind of have a general plan. What do you think about that, Zach? I think it can happen. I think the one time where like, I bring it up and tell people like maybe a move to make is people don't realize you can fall on your sword and you only die at the end of your turn. So if you fall on your sword, complete a quest and get a life back as part of the reward for that quest, you're alive and it's fine. It's just, that's usually the better play than either pulling a black card or putting a siege engine out. Because the problem with siege engines, it becomes two players' job the rest of the game of just poking those. Yeah, Zach, I I, I really appreciate you. Because I didn't know that the first time I played it. Uh, every, you just kind of assume that once you reach zero, like that's it. Um, when we played, like a when we played not too long ago, um, I really appreciated that you that you told me that rule because I think it actually helped me in, on two turns, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, it's definitely a thing that like most it it's, it's like the twelve card hand limit and so, and the tie thing. Not a lot of games function like that. Like if you go to zero, you're dead instantly. No, like you die at the end of the turn in this game. It's like, oh, okay. So we talked about white cards. Let's talk about the black cards. Uh, like I said earlier, they range from bad to nightmarish. Uh, they can put the grail back further. They can put the sword back further. They can start wars happening. Uh, they can make armor go away. They can make everyone come back to Camelot and end the turn. 
Uh, there's witches, and there's Morgan and Mordred, and some of those cards are bad. Put out two siege engines, or play the next three black cards in a row. Kind of bad. What are your guys' opinion on all the black cards? Well, I'll start us out. The, my least favorite one is the Black Grail, because not only does it hamper your, for, uh, your progress for Grail by one, but by two, because you have to toss a Grail card to get rid of it, and then the Grail card to replace the one it knocked out. So Black Grails are my bane. Yeah, I have to agree with Pat, because, Pat, I, I just remembered the fact that you have to toss one. Uh, so, yeah, I'm going to have to agree with Pat on that one. Well, there's also Desolation, which is like the super black rail that not only replaces it, but it also like moves the space closer. So it basically eats three white grails. Yeah, the, the exchange rate on uh, Holy Grails to Black Grails is really poor. And none of those black cards are particularly nice. Um, you know, the, uh, I don't know, I think it was a Morgan card where it was, you know, I think that's what killed everybody was, you know, everybody loses one life. And then just adding, just automatically adding to the grail list, you know, that sucks. But it's, uh, it's goes back to all ties go to evil. And I would say that the black deck is kind of more powerful overall than the white card you get. So, um, I really like the seven witches. I'm assuming there's seven of those cards where it's a permanent long term effect that you have to deal with. Um, some of them have other stipulations. Like yeah, the there, are, there are seven. There's seven. Some of them say, like, it'll go away after you complete a quest, or you can't do this until a quest is completed, but it's nice to have that little small touch where it's like, oh, hey guys, we, uh, we also have this other long-term effect to deal with now on top of us pulling any more black cards from that deck. Um, yeah, RC, I feel like... Um... Again, in that last game we played, didn't we have two of those out at the same time? Two witches doing two bad things like forever for the rest of the game? We had three at one point. We ended up with the one that uh, prevented us from playing Merlins until the next quest was completed. Oh, that's right. The Mer- yeah, the Merlin one. Yeah. Good God. <laughs> yeah, some uh, of the other standout black cards, there's uh, the one where Merlin cards just get removed from the game after you play them. Yep. And Guinevere was a pain. We had to deal with that one at a really inopportune time in the last game that we had. What's uh, What does Guinevere do? Guinevere forces all of the knights to return to the round table, and the player who drew that card, their turn ends immediately. They don't get a good action. It was me. I drew Guinevere. Wow, that's the pits. Wow, that's terrible. Does Now, I have a question about that. Does that track for... Guinevere, as far as like the theme and the lore for Camelot is concerned, yeah, this is after her and Lancelot hook up, so yeah. And she, she, she would just call the knights back, like, Oh, I have a problem, come, come answer my call. Um, definitely her concubine, she did. Um, I'm pretty sure she like asked Lancelot to come back during the affair. I don't, I don't know if she did that with anybody else, like off the top of my head, though. If you don't mind me jumping in real quick here, thematically, the way that I think about it is like, King Arthur learned his lesson the first time, and now he's like, whenever she sends letters to somebody, I'm always coming back with everybody. Yeah, exactly. It's it, Yeah, it's more of a, no, let's go check up on things, and then we can go back to what we were doing. So wait a second, was she sleeping around the round table? Is that what I'm getting? Oh, dude, for sure. Dude, read some Arthurian legend, man. For sure. 
Sure. And um, since we're kind of creeping in the theme here, I have another question. Is it Morgan Le Fay? Is that her name? Yeah, uh, Arthur's cousin or just someone from far away. There's a lot of different interpretations, whether she's just the queen of the Fae with the name or Arthur and her were kind of like sister and brother. Yeah, There's a lot of weird options. Now, on the game, she just comes in and nukes us, right? Does that kind of track for her? Yeah. Well, she's she's trying to get Mordred on the throne. Is that her husband? Arthur and her son makes that uh, brother sister thing weird. Yeah, uh, yeah, uh, uh, yeah. He's 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 terrible. Like like I said, read it. It's good. It's really good stuff. Yeah, I feel like being. Um, I don't know. Well, it doesn't seem to be tracking for you guys. Just being a U.S. citizen, I don't. I feel like there's more European kind of folklore kind of deal so maybe that's why I'm, i've missed out on a lot of it are you telling me you know more about babe and the big blue ox than uh than Pro- yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> i feel like my king arthur knowledge is monty python and the holy grail yeah but that, that's okay though that checks out yep. i'm gonna say I, I think most people start there unfortunately yeah Even exactly that perfect yeah, is it everybody starts a lot and you go from there it all starts with the East African swallows. Yep. <laughs> well, we've talked about a whole bunch of the game. Let's talk about the player powers. Every knight and the king have a power. Arthur's power is he gets to go first because he's king. That's just the title of king. But he's the only player that can trade. And as a trader, that's horrible because you can make terrible deals because the players don't get to see the, the trade. They just trade face down cards. But as a loyal king, it's also amazing. Yeah, he really gets everybody what they need. He's kind of a big crux for just, I don't know, making everybody else's life simpler within the kingdom. I feel like if he's the traitor, you, it's very likely that the game is going to be lost. Well, yeah, because like his, ter- his turn is probably the turn where people pay the most attention. Because at least someone's going to want something traded whether that's someone that needs more grails at the grail quest or someone at another quest wants to trade someone, something to someone else. Like he becomes the pivotal character and that makes sense as King. He's going to talk to all the knights. Yeah. I, um, there's definitely whenever his turn shows up, it's like a bunch of people. I don't know. I don't know if I'd say groveling or just, um, beseeching the King for, Oh my King, I have this for you or, you know, so on and so forth. Um, I'm going to take what I regard as the, second most powerful behind King Arthur, Sir Galahad. He has the ability to, once per heroic action, play one special white card for free. So Sir Galahad can do all the magic at a very efficient rate. Um, I don't know if that would track for him lore-wise, but that is very strong power within the game. I, um, I liked the power of the knight I had last time. I think leaving Camelot was a free, was a free move. If I'm not mistaken, am I getting yeah. that right? Yeah, that's for Tristan. Yeah, that that was a that was a pretty nifty power. It it came in handy a lot in that game. Yeah, when we played Tuesday, I had that power, and I would like finish a quest and then immediately go on another quest because when you finish one, you go back to Camelot. And then a um another very strong knight is Sir Percival, 
He has the ability to, um, during his um, progression of evil step, he's able to look at the top card of the black deck, so he can either determine whether it's bad for him or whether we need to be like, hey, guys, slow down on, you know, doing this quest because this black card's coming up next or it's going to affect doing that. So I think Sir Percival is pretty quintessential to the array of knights you have around the table. Well, not only that, he's almost like he can see it. You you almost never want him to draw it, though, because then you yeah. lose the information. Yeah. Does anyone else have some standout knights? Um, I've only I've only been uh, a single knight. Um, so uh, it was uh, uh, Bedivere uh, was the knight I was, and it was the power pretty much I could discard a white card from my hand and draw a new white card, uh, which, again, came in super handy when being the traitor because, you know, I'm discarding fate cards and chalice cards or goblet cards, and that was uh, that was pretty cool just to drop those on, uh, you know, unsuspecting uh, players, but... So Zach, I was going to ask you what what do you uh, since I, you've probably played the game probably more than any of us have what what do you think is the maybe the I don't want to call it the weakest power or the most useless power but what what seems to be the the one that's not as desired what seems to be the weakest one uh, so there's one we don't even play with which is from the expansion which we're going to talk about later there's a couple other ones that you add cards like in a combat like who cares. Yeah, Sir K. Versus, like, you get, like, the other blue knight where you get to roll the dice first when fighting Tijijins, so you know how many cards you have to get rid of. That part was amazing. Or if you're the black knight and you're at at the quest, you get an additional life, which means you can burn life to do more things. Yeah, there's a couple just sleep powers where you're just like, I don't know why you'd ever pick that. Pick the other power. And uh, I guess one more honorable mention. I feel like he's more of a middle-of-the-road Sir Gwayne, he's has the ability to draw three cards at the round table instead of two. Just having a bigger grip gives you more options. I just like him because he has a mace. I don't know why. That I just like that vibe. <laughs> well, uh, Pat, that checks out with you, man. You like to hit things with a stick. Yeah, yeah. It's the oldest pastime. Okay, we're going to quickly cover the expansion and then get into final thoughts. So the expansion adds an alternate... Uh, power for every color except for Arthur. So it, that's why there would be two white powers. It adds both orange powers. Uh, it adds Merlin as a figure you can put on the board and he moves around and why he's there in a space. Black cards don't happen on that space. It, we, it added the seven witches, some more black cards, the wild uh, fight cards. It added enough cards so that it, you can play up to nine players and have two traitors. It added the Squire mechanic, which we don't even bother with. And the reason why we don't play with Merlin is part of the Merlin mechanic is he moves around and there's a movement deck. But also when each player goes to move, they have to draw from the movement deck. And part of that is you might not even go to the quest you want to go on. You might get sent to a different quest. One of the cards just straight up captures you and someone else has to come save you. I find it makes the game so much more harder than having that part of the game that we don't, we just don't play with Merlin. Merlin's a bad boy. No, Merlin's good. It's just it's not worth that additional cost. Oh, okay. <laughs> so you mind filling us in on the squires because that's the, the the thing that we've kind of left out. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested in hearing about that. I mean, I, I know we don't we don't use it, but I'm I'm interested to hear how that works. Pulling it up. 
Like, I, have to look, I, I have to look it up again because it's been so long that I even stared at it. Oh, sorry, I'm wrong. Uh, squires are in the main game. They're under the expert rules portion. Oh, gotcha. The uh, Touch of Evil does that. They've got like the basic game and the advanced game. I have a few games that do that. Is it not hard enough already? Like, I feel like we barely make it sometimes. Dude, that's what I'm saying. Like, the last, the two times that I played, I mean, well, I think the last one, uh, we lost. But the first one was definitely by the hair on our chinny-chin-chin. Yeah, it's definitely a clincher pretty much every time. So here's how it works. Uh, You basically pick the color. You get the same starting hand. You don't get a power until you complete a quest. And like, say every knight is at the quest, one player gets to become a knight from a squire. Oh, good lord! Hmm. Yeah, that game is hard enough. We don't need that gas. I was going to say that. I mean, that would just okay. Um, I, I feel like that would be a loss. Almost that would be almost a guaranteed loss if it was at the right time. <laughs> well, like, yes, yeah, say, say say you started all the players as squires. You're just screwed. Yeah. It's like the interns will save Camelot. No. Also, like, who wants to play the game and not have a power? There's sometimes like your power is not used. That's fine, but it's available. No, no, no. You just don't have one. Someone that hates life. They just, I want to lose. It makes me feel good. Masochism. It'd be like playing a legendary encounter. It's like, no, no, no. You don't need to power this game. Like, no, I need that power. I think it's going to come eat my face. Thank you for listening to Ask the GM's podcast. Join us next week where we cover World of Darkness. Ooh.